This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. The following episode of TOEFOP is rated M.A. It may contain Batman references, time travel references, sexual references, lost trains of thought, and mild course language. TOEFOP advises that the program is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who enjoys succinct, coherent conversation that might actually have a point. Minors must be accompanied by a parent, guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. This is Tofop. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson, and this is our second go at recording this episode today because we've we've moved from Skype to Zoom in the hope that we might be able to actually see each other and talk to each other. And just as you were doing your intro, a little warning flashed up in the middle of your face on the screen that said your internet connection is unstable. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. I mean, look. We have put up with a lot in the recording of this podcast. Bad sound, being in different countries. I refuse to let this pandemic beat us, Will. We will record this episode by hook or by crook. Uh, what we were explaining in the previous episode was the mystery of my internet. Because I've moved to the country and so, you know, I knew that internet was always going to be a bit of a challenge. You know, you're moving into the hills, you're away from town, it's an old ASDL line. But, you know, the problem, I, but the problem is... ASDL, ADSL. See, I don't even know the order of the thing that I'm meant to be saying. It's ADSL 2, the sequel to the much-loved ADSL. ADSL 2, Electric Boogaloo. So it seemed to be working. The first week I was here, I was, I, was, I was getting stuff, Charlie. I was getting the internet, and it was the previous owner's internet, we think. And then I changed over to my internet, and the internet went away. And I was like, well, why did that happen? Because the internet was just here. And then it went away. And since I've plugged my modem or router, I'm not sure what it is. It may be both. It mm. may be a different thing if I plug it into different holes. Who fucking knows, Charlie? But I've plugged it in every fucking hole in the house, in every combination you could possibly have to rediscover that internet, that that magical internet that floated <laughs> through the mountains and was helping me podcast and watch things and upload things. And then one day... Mary Poppins like the second time I've made that joke, Charlie, it just, it, it, it opened its internet umbrella and it just floated away, never to be seen again. Did you take the opportunity of no internet? You often hear people say, oh, you know, I stayed, I went out away for the weekend and there's no internet. It was great. Like I didn't check my phone once. Was there any of that appeal for you initially? Were you like, oh, the internet's down. Maybe I'll just look at this beautiful view and just wander around the grounds of this property and, and just get back to nature. Oh, I would understand that if you weren't confined in solitary confinement with even with the person you love the most in the world, Charlie. After a while, you become unpleasant to them. And sometimes what you need is a little internet and television and streaming to take the heat off you so that, you know, your partner can remember why they actually like you. Sometimes you've got to break that that up with an internet binge series. You've got to let Ozark do some of the heavy lifting in your relationship. And 
there's there's been none of that and i would say it doesn't cut down the amount you look at your phone when you're trying to work out if you have internet because all you fucking do all day long is look at your phone to see if you have any internet in fact i've become one of those people at the beach with a um, metal detector just <laughs> wandering around my house searching internet where did where wherefore art thou why has why has thou forsaken me where are you <laughs> i mean yeah, look, streaming is one way to kind of break up the monotony. Another thing I could suggest is you um, have a baby <laughs> because I have had no time to watch any streaming services or anything like that. The baby is our internet, our distraction at the moment. And uh, Iona, we've just begun uh, sleep training, which is the idea behind sleep training is getting your baby to self-settle. So you, you put your baby in the cot like a, a regular human and it goes to sleep like a regular human as opposed to having to rock the baby to sleep or sing it songs to go to sleep. Uh, the thing is, babies don't want to just go to sleep. Like Babies like being comforted. I mean, think about it. If you had some giant warm creature that would like hug you and kiss you and rock you to sleep every night, wouldn't you prefer that? So uh, the last few nights have been... Well, I, I suggest, Charlie, that you're absolutely right. Sorry, I, I, sh I will try not to interrupt today because it's going to be incredibly difficult with this connection. But I did not want to move on to that point because as soon as you... This is how we've got it wrong as human beings, right? Like you're, what, less than a year into having a bloody baby and you're already going... Too bad your good life of being rocked and sung to sleep like anybody would want in the entire world is over. Hope you enjoyed it, baby, because it's time to grow up and join the real world like a human and get yourself to sleep with your fears and nightmares and premonitions about what's going to happen. Yeah. If I have to stay awake all night staring up at the ceiling wondering how we're going to get through the next year, then so should you. I mean, in this book that we've bought, um, which is like a baby sleep book, they sort of talk about you should have been doing this from the word go. But the challenge of, you know, and uh, you don't have to be a parent to understand this. If you, if one of your dogs or your cats, you know, was in distress, like you have a natural impulse to want to comfort. And that is the huge challenge of this kind of period is that you put the baby down and then it's, it's all done like, the, it's, it's all timed. It's like you're meant to put, at certain ages, it's, the timings are different. So if she's six and a half months, so you put the baby down and you're meant to give it 18 minutes of her protest crying. And there's a difference between protest crying and emotional distress crying, which apparently you should know the difference. I can't. It all sounds like emotional distress crying for me. You, you allow that to happen for a certain amount of time. Then you go in and then you try and rather than pick the baby up and comfort and rock and do all the stuff that I have been doing thus far, you're meant to just comfort it in the, the cot until she goes to sleep. And so the idea being that she will eventually learn to settle herself. She won't require you to come in and pick her up and all this kind of stuff. But it is... Well, the, the difference between a baby and a dog, <laughs> the difference between a baby and a dog is literally that if you came, if Gemma came home from work, she's been out directing something, and she said, where's Iona? And you said, I had to put her down. She'd be like, oh, that's beautiful. Well done. Good on you. <laughs> Whereas if Amy came home from work and said, where's Ramona? And I said, I had to put her down. Suddenly that would be a very different situation. Well, you're living in the country now. Like that is a conversation that, you know, might happen. I remember a mate of mine who grew up in Dubbo telling me a story about, because uh, he came around and he met Junior and he was like, oh, you know, I grew up with the Jack Russell, who's my best mate, and a little Jack, whatever his name was, <laughs> Jack to Jack Russell. I'm sure he wasn't called Jack. I just couldn't think his of anything His name was better. Jack or Russell, the only two <laughs> names that Jack Russells are allowed to have. 
And he told me this story about like, you know, this dog was his best friend and then, you know, the dog got to uh, get a little bit older and I think it developed cancer or one of those ailments. And he said that it was a kind of dog, it was a working dog and it hated going to the vet. You couldn't, it, it would know as soon as you put it in the car what it was going to the vet. So he didn't want to put it through the distress of that. So he just took it down to the, its, its favorite spot by the creek, gave it a nice big bone to chew on. And while the dog was chewing a bone, loaded up his twenty-two and went and shot it in the back of the head. <laughs> and oh he was God. just, he was just telling like, me this. Took the dog telling- down to the river with a bone and a copy of the movie <laughs> of Mice and Men and said, look, you've got about an hour and a half left. And right at the end, there's going to be a big double twist. Yeah, he said, meet me on a pier at midnight. (laughs) Don't tell anyone. (laughs) But just this sheer kind of like casual nature of it. And, and, you know, he sort of explained it in that kind of Aussie sort of, you know, like, oh, you know, well, it was better that, you know, he he didn't know it was coming. And, you know, he was chewing a nice big juicy bone when it happened. And if you saw how much he had to go into the vet. But I understand that from the dog's perspective. That benefits the dog. But to be the person who loaded the gun and, and, and shoot the dog in the back of the head, I just, I just couldn't imagine doing that. I mean, did you ever have to put any animals down growing up on the farm? Not me personally. That would have been quite a cruel farm to grow up on. If your parents are like, well, you're 14 now, son. You're going to have to learn. Um, but I saw animals put down. Yes, absolutely. Although most of the time, still, even on a farm, it's done by... My, my dad was pretty much an outsourcer for most of that. Like if a... If a big animal in particular, he would still get the vet to come and, you know, do it in a humane fashion. Um, so I didn't see that firsthand dad's gone to get the shotgun or, you know, dad's gone to get his strangling gloves. So that wasn't really... <laughs> Sorry, Charlie just took a big swing of his drink as I said strangling gloves. And I nearly took out two victims with those strangling gloves. <laughs> Yeah, Dad just went to set up his webcam, hostel style. <laughs> Sell the videos on the snuff market. I mean, killed a lot of animals, got a lot of likes. You know, that's the way the world works. Uh, yeah, so we've been trapped in a house. Uh, not trapped in a house, I shouldn't say that. But we've been in isolation with uh, um, a baby that we are trying to train to sleep. And so... It's these, you get these, we, we have been trying to watch more, more stuff because it's very rare that we're home at the same time to watch stuff anyway. But at this stage of being a parent, you get 20 minutes into any movie and you fall asleep. Like it's just part of the course. We have started and stopped about like 20 films because we can't get more than 20 minutes in before you just want to go to bed. That's all you want to do as a new parent is sleep, but you can't. It's like some kind of... Uh, Faustian deal. It's like you get this thing in your life that you love more than anything you've ever loved, but you'll never sleep again. Yeah. You know how much you love this thing? You're just going to have to stare at it constantly because it's constantly going to be awake and so are you. Enjoy the first 20 minutes of every movie you're ever going to watch for the rest of your life. (laughs) I did get to actually watch a film all the way through on the weekend though Um, because I've been doing that thing where you just spend most of your time, let's watch a film, sure, and then you spend the whole time just scrolling through the menus of Netflix or Stan or whatever and never actually settling on anything. And so I said, let's just watch Pulp Fiction because we know it's a good film. It's been a while since I've seen it and I wouldn't mind just sort of watching something that you you don't want to put on that new Ryan Reynolds film and then go, oh, fuck, like, why do we pick this? It's garbage. At least we know we're going to get quality and it's been long enough since we've seen it that we might get something out of it. 
And that film... Well, I will say firstly, before you go on, I watched... Uh, I put on that new Ryan Reynolds film and I will say to you very proudly that I got five minutes in and went, why am I watching this? This is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I had an instinct about that. <laughs> you were right. Uh, uh, but Pulp Fiction, man, like... It's sort of funny. Like, and there's certain films that are so influential and so famous that you kind of take it for granted. Like watching it, it's like, A, it stands up incredibly well. Like it is still like a, a, an almost flawless film from performances to writing to shock value, all that kind of stuff. But you just realize watching it, like how all pervasive it is in terms of, of culture. Like I think Quentin Tarantino still makes good films, but... It's that one, right? That's what he's going to be remembered for. When you think Quentin Tarantino, he hasn't made anything else that really comes close to the level of Pulp Fiction, has he? Not as something that literally changed cinema. Like, they will look back on Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino had aspirations, clearly, to be one of the great all-time directors. And Pulp Fiction is his movie that forever puts him in that zone. You could make an argument for a whole bunch of his other movies making him a great director. I mean, Reservoir Dogs is an incredible debut. Inglorious Bastards, to me, is like Pulp Fiction, one of those movies that I can just watch any time that it's on television and from start to finish go, this is just a fantastic film. Like, there are so many of his films that I have absolutely loved, but, but Pulp Fiction's the one that puts him in the A-grader category. Well, I think it's where it sits in the kind of uh, landscape of movies at the time. The fact that, because I worked, that was probably around about the time I was working in a video store and it felt like every couple of months there'd be another movie would come in that was just a Pulp Fiction knockoff. Every film was about, uh, you know, a, a group of gangsters who all dressed really cool, trying to pull off some kind of heist or whatever, where it was like outrageously violent, you know, kind of sexual or whatever. Just everything was like pushed to the max, but they were all fucking terrible. Yeah, well, it's always the original one. And I mean, when you say the original one, it's it's funny to say with a Quentin Tarantino movie, isn't it? Because mm. like, you know, Pulp Fiction isn't an original movie in some ways. It's him paying tribute to a particular style and era of movies, but reimagining it. And that's a bit why I think... I love the Kill Bill films is because, again, they're not original films, but what he does with that source material and the way that he combines it into something that is original elevates mm. it. Well, I, you kind of get the feeling with all of the films he made after that. Like, so you, if you look at, if you break down his career from like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, that's like his kind of crime trilogy, right? And then you go into sort of Kill Bill... Death Proof, which is sort of like his 70s kind of grindhouse cinema, exploitation cinema. And then mm. he moves into Inglorious Bastards and uh, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Hateful Eight. Well, not, I don't know where you're into Django. So Django and Hateful of the Westerns, but then the other three are like revisionist history. So he has these kind of modes of operating and it, it sort of feels like, like I was watch, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood about two weeks ago as well, at least half of it. And you're watching this film and you're like, what is this? Like, if any other filmmaker had made it, you'd go, this is incredibly indulgent. All these fucking driving scenes, these sort of like little um, uh, uh, tangents that he goes on where suddenly you're on set of a TV show. It's like a 12-minute scene of like a B-grade TV show getting shot. But because he's so consistent with his POV, you know, and his 
understanding of this world of like television and movie stars of that era it worked it's kind of like i always think about david lynch if any other filmmaker took david lynch's tropes you know the kind of heavy sound design and just the surreal imagery and stuff and tried to do it it would come across as completely artificial but because david lynch is a filmmaker is so consistent in his use of those odd tropes that's why it works yeah, I think there's an element with David Lynch, with Quentin Tarantino, with any of those people where when you ask that question that you would ask of other people, what's the point of this? With them, the point of it is, is that it is, that's the point of it. The thing that you're watching is the point of it. The 12 minutes of watching this old school television set reimagined and this, the, that that's the point of it. Why is the car driving out of the driveway and we're watching the car drive down the so many times? Because that's the point of it. Why is that there? Because that's why it's there. Well, it got me thinking about, um, you know, auteurs and the idea of having a point of view. Because there's this, uh, do you ever watch, there's a guy called Patrick Willems on YouTube. He does these great video essays on cinema. He's this cinema studies kind of guy. And he did this two-part series about Michael Bay, defending Michael Bay saying that, you know, Michael Bay is really readily dismissed as being this kind of shit director and he's got like a terrible score on Rotten Tomatoes. And he's gone, but the idea of him being a hack doesn't really make sense because when you ask someone to describe a Michael Bay film, they can talk about like his lurid color palette, the way the camera moves, the kinetic editing, you know, the male gaze of females, you know, sports cars. He has a definite signature and it's gone. His point of view is juvenile and base and naval. But you can't, navel-gazing, but you can't suggest that he doesn't have a point of view. This is just what happens when you give, like, a guy with the mentality of a 12-year-old, you know, hundreds of million dollars to make a movie. And he does it really, really well. Whether or not you like it is just a question of taste. But it's not like, you know, you can point at, at, at like, a dozen other directors, like a Brett Ratner or whatever, who make the same kind of films, but you don't remember anything about Brett Ratner. If you were to describe me what's Brett Ratner's cinematic style, he doesn't really have one. So what you're basically saying is if you're going to be terrible, be the worst. Then people remember who you are. Like essentially Michael Bay is the equivalent of a hundred million dollar monkey smearing his own shit on a fucking piece of canvas. But somebody comes along and says, well, he's got a point of view. You know, no, smearing the shit on the canvas. I, I don't think it's that because that's more what like a director like Yui Bowl or some kind of B-grade exploitation director is. Like that's kind of, you know, that's like punk where you just go out and you just doesn't matter if you've got any technical ability, you just fucking have a go. Whereas Michael Bay is technically proficient. Like he knows how to move a camera. He knows how to compose a scene. It's just that his point of view of the world is shit. <laughs> Like, it's really, it's really shallow and juvenile. But, you know, if you're sort of arguing... I mean, you, I guess you're right. You're like, I do understand what Michael Bay's point of view is. I just hate what Michael Bay's point of view is. But it is yeah. a point of view. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, they, in this video essay, um, they bring up a quote by another director who went to film school with Michael Bay. And they talked about how um, one of the assignments they were given was they had to make a music video for an existing piece of music as an exercise. And because it was film school, all these film school students chose like, you know, Tom Waits or like Nick Cave or just, you know, a serious kind of artist. And, and he chose like, take my breath away from Top Gun. And the guy was saying like, it was the best of all the things that were made because everyone else was trying to create a piece of important work where he's like, fuck it, this song moves me. You know, even though it's shit, it moves me. And he actually was able to create something that reflected part of who he was. 
Has Michael Bay ever made a film that you thought was great? Uh, I enjoy The Rock. That's probably the film of his that I've enjoyed the most. And Armageddon as like a cheesy kind of like over the top thing. But um, I'm not, I've, I've not, I've, I've, I've tried to watch like, one, I can't remember which of the bad boys, one of them. And I just can't get in, I can't get into bad boys. But I did like The Rock and, and I thought Armageddon was fun. Why? Do you, have a, do you have a Michael Bay film that you like? Well, I would be, not really is the answer, but <laughs> if, if you had to do that thing where they were like, you have to watch one Michael Bay film for the rest of your life, you know, once a week you have to watch a Michael Bay film and it has to be the same Michael Bay film, you know, what is that film going to be? I'd say The Rock. I think it's, The Rock was kind of at a time where he wasn't quite, he's not the Michael Bay of Transformers. He was not quite bloated yet. It's got Nicolas Cage right when Nicolas Cage was at his, probably his best. Although, having said that, having seen some of Nicolas Cage's recent films, maybe Nicolas Cage is at his best now because that guy's completely <laughs> off the fucking planet. But that was like, you know, leaving Las Vegas, Oscar winner, shifting from Coen Brothers films into mainstream action, Nick Cage. You've got a vintage old Sean Connery and you've just got some awesome action. Yeah, I'd, I'd say The Rock. Could you remake the movie The Rock? And supplementary question, could you meet, remake the movie The Rock with The Rock? Uh, yes. Yes, I think you should meet, remake The Rock with The Rock. In fact, when I was working at the video store, I had a T-shirt that said The Rock. It was to promote the film. And I was thinking, wouldn't that be great to that T-shirt now? Because people would be like, The Rock. And I'd be like, not that rock, The Rock. I mean, The Rock in The Rock. I mean, are you telling me that I can't sell that even during a pandemic, well, Charlie? The Rock must have... Dwayne, let's just... <laughs> for clarity's sake, Dwayne Johnson must have named himself... Like, that. The, the Rock came before Dwayne Johnson's The Rock. Are you suggesting to me that Dwayne Johnson is named after the movie The Rock, the Michael Bay movie The Rock? Podcast, Mike, can you... I don't know. We're on uh, uh, Zoom, not Skype, so I don't know how messaging works on this. But can you just see... Where the Rock? I mean, I know his dad was Rocky May of Rocky Johnson, so I'm assuming right. son of the Rock. But he wasn't called Saw, S O R, son of Rock. Uh, yeah, and otherwise he should have been like called Pebbles or something, <laughs> as well, right? Like if you're son son of the Rock. Uh, podcast, Mike, can you find out where the, how The Rock decided to... I mean, I think it's going to be obvious, but just, just for clarity's sake, in case he named himself after the Michael Bay, the 1995 Michael Bay action film, The Rock, uh, where did The Rock get his moniker from? It came from the, his previous ring name, Rocky Maivia, which he got when he started wrestling. Okay, so he entered wrestling as Rocky Maivia and then just went into the third person and changed it to The Rock. It's a bit of a coincidence, the don't Rock. you think, Will? <laughs> It would be great if the real origin story was one day revealed. Like Dwayne's just doing an interview and he's like, look, I've never really spoken about this before, but I was sitting at home and I had this wrestling name and then I was, Nicolas Cage, I love Nicolas Cage and I was watching this movie and I just suddenly, an idea occurred to me. Well, it seems a bit odd, right? Like, so his previous ring name was Rocky Maivia. And then if you're going to short, I understand shortening it, changing it, putting the emphasis on, on rock, but wouldn't you just become Rocky? Or is that too close? There's some films I'll steal from and others I won't. 
Basically, everyone's like, you should call it Rocky. And he's like, like the movie Rocky. No, thank you. I would never do anything like that. You know what movie I like? Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage in The Rock. Now, there's a name. Well, you've read uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson's autobiography. I think I've read it as well. The one he released in 2003. There's a photo of him promoting it on your on your radio show. When can you remember well, the decision for him to start speaking in the third person? Because he didn't always speak in the third person. That became part of his persona, right? Um, I well, firstly, you knew me in two thousand and three or whenever it was. How much of that era do you think I can remember? <laughs> not much. <laughs> Certainly not an autobiography of The Rock that I read back then. Okay. So right. I cannot remember. I'll tell you what I remember. The, the Rock's autobiography, fuck, I wish, I think, I might still have it here. I should probably get it. We can do a reading from it. <laughs> but The Rock's autobiography from memory, it's written in two parts. So one, uh, so half of it is written from the point of view of Dwayne Johnson and the other is written from the point of view of The Rock. So, and I even seem to remember, and I don't know if this is right, that the passages written by The Rock are in, are in like bold, <laughs> as if, you know, but it's all like third person you know, uh, the limo, the, the limozo, what does he say? The limousine riding, death-defying, bubble, you know, all the kind of shit that The Rock says. And then there's the more measured Dwayne Johnson talking about, well, this is how I got into wrestling and blah, blah, blah. I mean, okay, well, while we're pitching rock movies, which is really all I really want to do on this podcast, <laughs> if this podcast could one day get a movie made with The Rock, I'll just keep throwing ideas out there until he hears about one of them and we get it made. How about a more introspective sort of thing where it is a sort of fight club style scenario where it is an identity film, you know, about the relationship between Dwayne Johnson and The Rock as if they are oh, indeed two different personas. I love it. Like, well, yeah, so you could do it like, there's a couple of films that are precedent. So you could do it either like uh, Birdman where, you know, Michael Keaton's character uh, is haunted by his most famous character. Birdman, or you could do it like adaptation, where you know a washed-up rock is haunted. No, you could have that the rock is haunted by his pathetic Clark Kent version of himself. Dwayne Johnson <laughs> shares a flat with him. I mean, what if it's a story about Dwayne Johnson, Superman style? I like that. Yeah. Where his identity as the people's champion, the rock, is a secret identity. And so by day, he's mild-mannered Dwayne Johnson. But by night, he has a secret identity as the, the most electrifying force in sports and entertainment. But hang on. Is this, are we putting this in the real world where he's the most famous man on the planet? Because how could he have like a secret identity when everyone knows him as Dwayne The Rock Johnson? It's not like it's Br Bruce well, no, the Batman Wayne. Reality, it's a, it's, a, it's a Quentin Tarantino slightly revisionist history okay. where nobody knows that the most famous man on the planet, Dwayne Johnson, is also <laughs> the most famous wrestler of all time, The Rock. Yeah. So you're saying a six foot five, muscle bound, tattooed Samoan is just going to easily occupy like two identities with no one making the link. He just puts on glasses when he's Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, because, because when he's Dwayne Johnson, he wears glasses. <laughs> so it's fine. No one will know. No, I like the idea of him, and I think The Rock is a smart enough cookie that he would he could do something like Birdman. I think that's, and I think it's awesome because he's at the kind of right age too, where he's probably never 
ever going to get back into the ring again. He's getting, you know, too old for that. So I reckon maybe in about five years' time, and you can use de-aging kind of technology, The Rock is sort of on the way out as an action movie star, and he's trying to work out how he can reclaim that title, you know, as the, as the, as, as the, the get back on the throne. And then he's visited or haunted by a Attitude Era rock. Oh, what about if we, I mean, I love this, by the way. I think that that's a great idea. And, or you can make it a little bit like The Irishman. You know, The Rock's just sitting in the nursing home, the only guy who survived. <laughs> Royal Rumble 98. <laughs> I love it. I love it. They say, hey, Rock, or what about- Rock, the Undertaker's here. Oh, great, the Undertaker. No, 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 no. An Undertaker's here. Uh, the Undertaker. <laughs> or what about like a, a like a, a Christmas carol? The Rock does like oh, a Christmas carol. I love it. Where he's like visited by the rocks, like sort of rocks from different eras, rocks past, and he gets to play all the various different versions of the rock in like a comedic role. So what would the, but what would the eras of the, of the rock be? So you'd have like, You've got WWE version rock, and then you've got movie star. Yeah, but you've got early version of that, which is all sideburns and yeah. early attitude. So you've got pre-rock the rock. Okay. You've got like Rocky. Or how about Rocky, whatever his name where, was. No, that's there. Yeah, so you've got pre-rock rock, which is Rocky Maivia, where he's, because he was a baby face, remember? He had like curly hair and was like out, like trying to get the crowd on his side by doing backflips, all that kind of shit. Then you've got attitude era rock. Yep. Where he's the bad guy, he's in the. Um... Oh, hang on! You've got Canadian foot. You've got Canadian Football League, The Rock. So you've got his previous career as a professional, you know, gridiron player. So you've got Canadian footballs, The Rock first. His college years. So aspiring a professional athlete, The Rock. Yeah, that's good because that's great, awesome. Before he goes to wrestling, yeah, because that's that's a great framing device because that character, he that's the uh, the the rosebud of the story because that character is a. 17 year old or whatever is you understand that he's got dreams about you know becoming a professional nfl footballer he wants to have endorsement deals he wants to he wants to take over the world but then you know his knee injury or whatever the hell happened to him ruins that so that's one persona but that guy can come back because if the rock is in the nursing home irishman style that is the kid who will be most nagging him to say you promised me you're going to get to the top and stay on top. What are you doing in this nursing home? You need to get back on it. Then you got attitude era, which is like the totally cocky, arrogant, eyebrow raising, most electrifying man in sports entertainment. So he comes along and he's the one who's all about like, he's, he's the id. Just every impulse you've got, he doesn't give a shit. Continues to speak in the third person, tells him to, you know, like steal, kick, escape the nursing uh, hang on before we go on how old is the rock are we saying like 80s he's 80 years old yeah he's yeah at least 80 years old in fact he's 90 he's not he's in his okay. 90s but he's in the shape that a normal person would be at sort of say late 70s but like he's okay. mid 90s he's approaching his 100th birthday okay so he's like everything just a normal hurts. Every, every part of him, every bit of damage that he's done to his body over the years, every like, you know, weight that he's lifted, every single thing about him hurts. You know, he wanted to be the, the most entertaining, best known person on the entire planet. And he was, and now he is just living out his years in absolute darkness and pain. I'm sorry, just that uh, that last little bit, the connection slowed right down. So you sounded like you're incredibly drunk. Uh, okay, so... 
is is an old man in the nursing home. That's great. Okay, so is so is it conceivable though that ninety year old Rock is thinking about how he can get back to the top? I mean, is he delusional? Is he is his brain mis are the synapses in his brain misfiring? Maybe there is like a event like a wrestlemania or a, some sort of event that they just want him to go back and essentially do because like the rock at 95 is going to be the same shape as like rick flair was you know when he was still wrestling right so the yeah. idea is yeah. that he could come back and you know like wrestle in just like it doesn't have to be a you know huge event but like they want him to be able to do like the people's elbow and you know yeah a couple a couple of his like most famous moves well hang on but the idea is that he was once the biggest star in the world and he wants to get back to that. So I don't think he's going to... I think his ambition is to be a movie star again and that he sees what he has to do is retrace the steps of his career that got him to that point. Yeah, but he can't be. That's that's too much. That's No, that's too much. What do you mean? No, I think it's the opposite, which is like he's gone well beyond wrestling. He's had this entire career... But wrestling has become the biggest entertainment in the entire world because it's the only one who, the, it's the only sport that went on through the great <laughs> pandemic that actually lasted 35 years <laughs> that nobody knew was going to happen. Oh. And so wrestling became the only form of entertainment on the planet and it became what everybody would watch and discuss last. So he would, not only was this famous movie star and this famous icon, but also wrestling had become this very famous thing. Uh, even better than that, because you're 100% correct. The WWE has got all those exemptions, so they keep putting it on. But then it evolves to the point, because it's so strange to watch it without the crowds and stuff, where after a while, the actual wrestling started to get phased out. And what it became was almost like, uh, you know, theater at the globe. It was just sort of Shakespearean, where yeah. people started tuning into the WWE to watch the conflicts. And then the wrestling just became, just fell by the wayside. It just became like theater. Uh, but they, they, there must be some sort of move still, some physicality to each match. So it might the wrestle, the wrestling bit of it might be like three percent of the entire, you know. So like the entire scene isn't the sex scene, you know. The entire show isn't the sex scene, but you've got to have that thing at the end of like. So there are these eight to ten minute plays, mm. you know, these stories that people tune in for. But at the end, for like fifteen to thirty seconds, there's also always some sort of wrestling. Violence. Yeah, to it. yeah, there's some. Well, even in yeah. wrestling to, today, or not today, but like in the last ten years, they'd bring out like the old wrestlers, like Mae Young, you know, who's like a super famous female wrestler, and she was coming out to like WrestleMania and stuff as an eighty-year-old and getting like thrown through the tables by the Dudley Boys, <laughs> you know, like so maybe. <laughs> Like Shane McMahon Jr. <laughs> contacts The Rock in the nursing home and says, hey, look, at WrestleMania 100, we want to bring you out and throw you through like 15 chairs or 15 tables. What do you think? And so then that kickstarts. That's, that's the inciting incident of the film. And then The Rock has to sort of converse with all different versions of himself to work out whether or not he should go through it. So in that case, okay, if we're I'm saying... Not- if we're saying he's in the nursing home, so we're suggesting that he had a career beyond present day. So after 2020, did he go on to become president? Yes. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yes. absolutely. <laughs> like, you know, he already had this huge... He always had this huge audience, you know, that were already tuned into his Instagram feed. He was perfectly prepared for this new era because he already had all the eyeballs on the planet and he already understood social media. So when the great pandemic happened... I'm going to say it happened for, let's say, 20 years. 
20 years we're in some version of this pandemic, the great pandemic. And so The Rock doesn't get elected in 2020, but The Rock gets elected in 2024 and serves a second term in 2028 from his house. Still doing his cheat day live. You know, just like, you know, he brings a bit of fun back to the presidency. Iron Paradise. He's doing his uh, 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 State of the Union from the Iron Paradise. I mean, essentially, (laughs) he becomes President Camacho from Idiocracy. (laughs) Professional wrestler slash porn star. Yeah, well, somebody said, like, uh, online today, I was reading, they said the only problem with Idiocracy was that it's set, you know, 500 years in the future or whatever. (laughs) It's like... 3,000. I think it's 3,000 years in the future. Yeah, it really, really happened a lot quicker. It's a perfect movie other than that. (laughs) All right, so we've got um, uh, uh, Canadian football rock. We've got uh, uh, Rocky Maivia, did we say that? Like, uh, Babyface rock. We've got Attitude rock. We've got movie star rock and then we've got president rock i think that's fine no 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 i I think there's two distinct eras of his movie life as well you've got to do aspiring movie star okay being treated as a joke you know rock because that's such an important part of the story is everyone going oh this wrestler can never be a big movie star and then the bit where he becomes the biggest movie star in the world okay so scorpion king we'll say there's scorpion king rock Mm. and then there's jumanji rock what 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 did Jumanji announce him as a movie star? No. Fast and the Fu- What's the... What's the... What film announced Rock as his own franchise? I don't think that there was any particular film. It just happened. It just got to the point where you're just like, oh yeah, The Rock's the biggest movie star in the world. But I don't think that there was one in particular that made everybody go... He... What I loved about The Rock was he had a lot of goes at it first. I think a lot of people just did not believe in his movie career. And he did a whole bunch of different things. In, including Get Shorty or or the sequel to Get Shorty, he was in yeah. involved in one of those. He was doing some like art house flicks. He was doing straight action stuff. Like this is an interesting period of his acting career. All right, okay. So let's see. I'm just going to see if there was a definitive yeah. rock. Star Have you got all of them? Called... Let's just go through the rocks movies. Okay. Yeah. Have you got all the movies of the Rock? Yeah. Yeah. In order. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Jesus Christ, he's made so much shit. He's done because he's done TV and a bunch of other things all the way through this. Okay, all right. So we'll just we'll skip past all like his you know playing the rock stuff and get into his movie career. Starting with the Mummy Returns, where he played yeah. the Scorpion King. Uh, then he's in a film called The Long Shot, played a mugger, blah blah blah. Then he gets his own spin-off movie, The Scorpion King, right? Yeah. Uh, then his next movie role is uh, Welcome to the Jungle, otherwise known as The Rundown. Yep. Then he does Walking Tall. Then he does Be Cool, the Get Shorty sequel. Then he does Doom, based on the video game. Then he does uh, Southland Tales from the director of Donnie da- Johnny Donnie Darko. Johnny Jarko. Johnny Jarko. Yep. Then he does The Gridiron Gang. Uh, he does a couple of TV gameplay. He does a kids' film, The Game Plan, where he plays a footballer. It's kind of his kindergarten cop. Then he plays a small role in Get Smart. Yeah, so he's like, you're right, experimenting, doing comedy here, little bits there. He's also doing TV. He played the whole Jaime, time. I think. Oh, is he playing Jaime, the robot? I think he, I think he played Jaime. Or, or maybe he was, no, he was playing no, a super agent that Max was um, perhaps in competition with. Anyway, uh, I saw that movie he does again a, recently. Race to Witch Mountain. Then he does Saturday Night Live where he does the classic, uh, the Rock Obama sketch. Uh, then he does The Tooth Fairy, another kid's film. I mean, looking at this now, you can definitely see there's a strategy behind this. Like, 
the way he's approached his film career is he's obviously looked at other guys like Arnie who have expanded and it's like, okay, well, that's fine. Bread and butter is going to be action, but I need to, I need to do like a family film. I need to do a comedy. I need to do a voice in an animated film. Um, okay. Then he did the other guys. Then uh, Faster, which seems like a Fast and Furious kind of ripoff. Uh, Fast and Furious 5. Okay, so 2011, he, do, he enters the Fast and Furious franchise. So this is probably, that I would say that's probably one of his most iconic characters, right? Hobbs? Right. Yep. 2011. I agree. I reckon this is when he started to enter the kind of public uh, awareness. Journey, uh, then he does... Journey to the Center of the Earth 2. I didn't even realize I made a sequel to that. Then he does a film called Snitch, which looks exactly like Driven. <laughs> I mean, it's almost an identical poster. Never even heard of it. But it looks like a crime film in which he drives a car very fast. Then he does G.I. Joe Retaliation. Then he has a film called Empire State, which I've never heard of. And then our favorite director, Michael Bay, he does Pain and Gain in 2013. So looking for a bit of dramatic cred there. Yes, yeah. So up until this point, I think there's two of these movies that I have not seen. Uh, Driven and Snitch. <laughs> no, I've seen Snitch. I can't remember have what you it was really? about, but I remember seeing Snitch. But I've not oh, watched Driven. No, no, sorry, Faster. <laughs> the, 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 the movie's called Faster. His character's name is Driver. And not Adam Driver, like an actual car driver, I'm assuming. Where he plays Adam Driver. I would watch that movie. Oh, the Rock fuck, plays mate. the actor Adam Driver. Marriage Story recast with The Rock. I would watch that in but a heartbeat. otherwise, exactly the same. <laughs> okay, then Imagine he does... Imagine that if Noah Bombach... That, that was Noah Bombach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if Noah, Noah Bombach said, uh, much like there's a Snyder Cut, uh, I also have another cut of this movie. As an experiment, because <laughs> I was tossing up between two people for the main role. Adam Driver, I love his energy, but I love the the Rock's pull at the box office and his magnetism. So I got the Rock to do a version where he plays Adam Driver. We're going to release that on DVD. <laughs> I think that's one of our favorite things. It's just like when we recast Adam Sandler in Perfume, where we want him to make the exact same film just with Adam Sandler and Jack and Jill drag. We want the Rock to do Marriage Story. <clears throat> okay, twenty fourteen he does Hercules, and that's you know that's a. That's a fairly big studio film. Yep. It's a grab. Didn't quite work out. Fast and the Furious 7. So he comes back for that. Oh, here we go. Now we're getting into biggest star in the world territory. San Andreas. Then he does Central Intelligence with Martin. Uh, no, what's his yep. name? Um, uh, what's his name? Not Martin Lawrence. Uh, you know, little guy. Kevin Hart. Funny. Kevin Hart. Thank you. Uh, oh, then he does Moana, which was a big hit. Animated. So now he's getting to be mega famous. Fast and the Furious, he does another one of those, The Fate of the Furious. Then he does Baywatch. So now he's producing all this. He's producing these films. So now, now you've got to think he's in the, in the zone, right? So what would you say? And then it goes on. It's uh, Jumanji, blah, 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 fighting with my family, blah, blah, blah. blah. So what, would you say there is a turning point? I'd say it's San Andreas. So he goes from being... Because he's part of an ensemble in the Fast and the Furious films. Hercules... Is a crack at a starring sand, sword and sandals film, but didn't really take off. Pain and Gain, again, is part of an ensemble. Empire State, ensemble. G.I. Joe, before that, now, is I all think, ensemble. I think what he, it's mostly that he has a good eye for a good ensemble. Like, he does a bunch of his own things in between. A lot of them haven't actually been that big a hit. 
you know, mm. when you think about you know those sort of films, you know, Skyscraper, all those sort of things, they're very entertaining films, but none of them were massive, massive, massive hits. He just is involved in enough good things and a lot of them collaborations that in a cumulative way, he's got himself to number one. San Andreas was a big film, wasn't it? I'm just saying what the box office was. Yeah, but it's not like a career-defining, no. this made this person a star film. No, it was it was budget was a hundred million and it only made well only but almost five hundred million. But that's not you know by Marvel standards that's not that great. Yeah, okay, all right. So you'd say the Fast and the Furious then was probably that would be the turning point where he went from being the kind of jobbing to use wrestling parlance. <laughs> he went from being a jobbing type actor to being a movie star. Fast and the Furious. Because I mean, it's a great part- call, isn't it? Because that would have been, we, you know, know about a bit about how these conversations happen. That would have been a decision he debated a fair bit, you would have thought, because there would have been a discussion around who's getting more out of this. Is the movie getting more out of this? Are you a big enough star already that the movie's getting more out of this than you're getting? Maybe you don't want to jump on board a franchise that might be about to die at movie six or something like that. And yet mm. him going into that universe reinvigorated it was already kind of reinvigorating itself but added to that impetus of it being reinvigorated and then it's just been incredibly good for him clearly 100 percent. i mean it's good enough that he got a spin-off and he's the only person in that cast to have got a spin-off and they brought him in as an adversary right <clears throat> he was brought in to be you know the someone who could go up against vin diesel and then because look i the Fast and Furious films, I am no expert. They all seem the same to me. But from what I can tell, you have an incredibly sincere Vin Diesel going on about family, and you know the only, the only when you when you do a street fight, the only thing that wins is the street or some fucking crazy bullshit philosophy. But then you got The Rock, who seems to be, and Jason Satham, who seem to be having a great time just running around and you know shooting guns and kicking blokes and stuff. They don't they don't seem to stop and kind of you know, mull over family or who's going to win a street fight, the street. No, because it's probably drawn into their contracts. that They're not allowed it. Vin Diesel's probably like, and family, you don't even mention your own fucking family on set. Like, yeah. I do the family shit. In these movies, when some... No, you don't have any brothers. And if you do have a brother, they're fucking evil. They are adversaries in these films because you... I'm the only one who can talk about how important family is. And you can't drink a Corona either, motherfucker. These are my conditions. I cannot lose a fight to you. You cannot drink a Corona. And I'm the only one who can mention the fact that I even have a fucking family. I mean, the the, the stipulation was so strong that The Rock had to go make fighting with my family just to get it out of his system. He goes, I want to make you, you to make a movie called Fighting With My Family and put it on the public record. Yeah, all right. So... That's the two eras of The Rock. So we say Scorpion, King Rock, and Fast and the Furious Rock, yes. right? Okay, so we've, just to recap, we've got uh, Canadian Football Rock, Babyface Rock, The Rock Rock, Scorpion King, Fast and the Furious, and then President Rock. So all those versions of him come to uh, Christmas Carol style, come to the nursing home to kind of either... Now, are they all in support of him doing WrestleMania 100? Or as some, like I imagine that maybe the President Rock is a bit more circumspect. Maybe the President Rock learnt a thing or two about the fleeting nature of fame and, you know, maybe contributing something of substance to the world as opposed to just going to grasp that brass ring one more time. Well, maybe the irony was that he was a great president, but his presidency wasn't great because 
we had become too consumed by being distracted by the stories of wrestling and entertainment then he couldn't actually get things through so like the irony was that the thing that had made him president which was you know our obsession with show business and celebrity was the same thing that made it impossible for him to do his job once he was in there because we were so distracted by celebrity and fame that we didn't pay any attention to him. So is President Rock advising old man Rock not to do it then? Or is he saying yeah. if you're going to do it, do it with substance? He's saying don't do that. Why would you go and dance with these people who destroyed everything that remained dear to us? Like the McMahons are running the world at this stage. Yeah, he's in a nursing home. The right. reason he's alone in a nursing home <laughs> That's as president probably... is he's been disavowed from this dystopian society that we now live in, which is purely run by the McMahons of the world. You know, Donald Trump, who used Vince McMahon's playbook to run for president, they've formed a sort of, you know, different world to The Rock. So this, this is why he's never gone back to wrestling, because there was a massive split when The Rock was actually president between this sort of alt-right Trumpian version of the world that was run by the McMahons, the only entertainment company and now theatre company in the entire world. Yeah, so there's basically all your entertainment comes from one company, the WWE, yeah. and it's uh, facilitated by Amazon, who's the only delivery service for said entertainment. Yeah. It's Jeff Worldwide. Bezos. And- they, they've changed their name to Worldwide Entertainment because it is literally the only entertainment worldwide. And they are watching it. Amazon's the only delivery company. The Rock is president. This is your future. So do you reckon you could make that now? Or do we have to age The Rock up? I think it'd be good to make it now. I think it would... I think The Rock is in a position too where he has enough clout that, you know, a studio will bankroll anything. If you got Charlie Kaufman, the writer of Being John Malkovich, to write this script and took it to The Rock, I reckon The Rock could easily... Well, The Rock's getting anything made. It doesn't matter what it is. But if you got Charlie Kaufman, I reckon you could have a chance at a really good script. Okay, so old Rock. So this is great. This is also Rock's Oscar movie, right? Because he gets to play all these different characters. He gets to play himself yes. old. Yes. So we set it... Yeah, absolutely. We, we make it now, but we set it, obviously, him as an old man. So we start with prosthetics and you know, CGI and all that sort of stuff. And he gets to show his acting range. So he's not actually an old man when he's making this. We just get to see him pretending to be old man and then playing all the various eras of his life. So half of them are behind him, but his presidential years and how the world, yeah, that's all sort of this dystopian future that he has to play and imagine and, and create those characters. Yeah, that's awesome. Michael so, Bay. <laughs> who directs it? Michael Bay. <laughs> Written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michael Bay. <laughs> it sounds like one of those fake movies from Entourage. <laughs> hey, can you put a light on in your room? Because it is so dark. Or like I can just make out your hand. It's the only thing that seems to be catching I, any light. I have noticed it got very dark in the light. And I was like, because you've got a backdrop <laughs> on our Zoom call. You've worked out how you yeah. can put up, like there's a Tofop, Ernie and Bert in the background. Oh, by the way, uh, James Fosdyke has put some new merchandise up on our Redbubble page. And every time you buy merch from his Redbubble, that's money he does not charge us for the art he does for the podcast. So it is a way that you can help with the podcast, but also have some excellent Tofop merchandise around... Um, around your house i've got a bunch myself and it is all excellent it's also probably worth letting people know that we are in the midst of a total overhaul of our website um and one of the things that we're adding to the new website is an ability to uh, purchase merch 
and artwork from the episodes uh, more easily because we understand that people get a bit confused right now. Apparently, finding us on Patreon is hard and finding us on Redbubble is hard. If you want to find us on Redbubble, it's redbubble.com slash Foz. If you want to find us on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash tofop, lowercase T-O-F-O-P. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Will, do you want to get some letters? We've got one here that is very relevant to our discussion. This is from Dan. Uh, the subject is, <laughs> God damn it, The Rock does it again. <laughs> I mean, you know how on this show we used to talk about AFL so much that people got annoyed and we ended up having to make an AFL podcast. Uh, should we do a rock, like just an exclusive We should rock pitch podcast? it to Triple M. The home we of could do that. The a rock short run series. comedy. That is basically the, the description of, the of this podcast. All we all we do is talk about the rock sport and comedy. <laughs> uh, Dan says, uh, "Kia ora, lads. I uh, hope the lockdown is going well for you over there. Here in New Zealand, we are in complete lockdown. Seems to be working good. So working though. So all good. Anyway, more rock content. I'm sure you've seen it, but the Rock is now live streaming his cheap meals. Is there anything this bloke can't do?" I found myself watching him intently for about an hour and a half as he smashed two glasses of his own tequila, then a brioche, then brioche French toast or something that looked like four full loaves of bread dunked in 24 eggs and two packets of cinnamon. Got to fuel the machine, I guess. Love your work, lads. Stay safe and keep the content coming. I know exactly about this cheat meal because that's my favorite thing on Instagram is the Rock's cheat meals. That um, French toast, each slice of the French toast is about the size, the thickness of a Bible. And then he smears peanut butter on top of that and then drizzles maple syrup or sometimes chocolate syrup over the whole thing. And it looks incredible. What is it about that that is so compelling? Because in a way, particularly in these times, you know, it's like going to your house and because you just think, man, your pantry... And the constant re-upping of your pantry must be, that must be a full-time job for somebody because like basically you would go around to the Rock's place and you go, oh, you, you've got all these supplies for the pandemic. And he's like, no, that's Friday. That's cheat day. I'm going to eat all that food in one go. But also <laughs> in these times, it feels incredibly indulgent when there are people all over the world who don't have enough food to be able to eat that the Rock goes live and just eats all this food. But for some reason... A, we don't care about all those things, but B, we just enjoy it so much. What What is that? I think it's just something about, it's like seeing a car drive really fast, like a Ferrari. Like there's just something about seeing a man of that size, you know, with who has to consume that amount of calories to maintain that size, to see him smash like four loaves of French toast. It's incredibly satisfying. I also think it's because there's an understanding that six days a week, pretty much every meal he's eaten just boiled chicken and and steamed broccoli. So, you know, in your head that he's been in iron paradise, just fucking dreaming about when he gets to Sunday and he can get his chef to make him chocolate chip cookies, the size of dinner plates that he's going to smear with peanut butter and then scull a couple bottles of his own to kill. I mean, you got to enjoy it, right? It's knowing that I don't think it would be nearly as enjoyable if it was, you know, some glutton, some dude who's famous. Like, I don't know why this guy comes to mind, but if it was Jared Depardieu, <laughs> I don't know why he came to mind. It was just the first guy I could think of. It was Jared Depardieu smashing 
like loaves of French bread. First, I'd be like, well, that's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> Probably the most famous Frenchman in the world smashing French toast. But secondly, you'd be like, stop it, mate. You're going to have a heart attack. But you're okay for The Rock to do it because this guy, like, he's a fucking machine. I mean, you're right. But there is another part of me that if I found out that Gerard Depardieu was doing an Instagram feed every Friday of him eating, like, 20 giant cookies smeared with peanut butter, I would also... Take a peek at that, I think. <laughs> uh, Nick writes in, subject line ticks. Hello, fellows. Just had to share something related to Will's tick story from uh, this last uh, this podcast, last week's podcast. We usually go camping on the south coast of New South Wales at Christmas for a few weeks. Two adults, two kids, all under 10. Even the adults. All usually fun and quite functional. I'm normally quite an urban guy, so I like to get in touch with my inner Aussie. Sorry, I shouldn't. Sorry, have, say again. I should have let it go. Uh, you said all under ten. I said even the adults. It was not worth us <laughs> backing over it. It probably wasn't worth it at the time. All right. It certainly interrupted your flow. <laughs> I apologise to you and the listeners. And a podcast mic is going to have to make sure that this fucking podcast is not a mess. So I apologise to everybody. Anyway, back to the letter. Oh. Camping kids. So I try and get in touch with my inner Aussie by spending the full holiday in board shorts. Anyway, enough scene setting. After a lovely day bushwalking and swimming, my partner and I are lying in bed in pitch blackness. Something isn't... Oh, uh, I was going to say pitch blackness, another rock film, but it's actually Vin Diesel film, His Mortal Enemy. I apologise, rock, don't hold it against me. Uh, okay, so they're lying in bed in pitch blackness. Something isn't feeling right with me, and so absentmindedly... And so I'm absentmindedly playing with my balls. <laughs> like... When something's not feeling right with you, do you absentmindedly play with your balls? That's a question to you, Will. Yeah, like, like they're magic eight balls. I just try to, like, you know, get a sense of, you know, what's going to happen in the future. It's just, it's comforting. It's like one of those, you know, like squeezy exercise balls that you can have in the office. Or sometimes I will actually use it like those, like, five balls that you have in a row where you knock one into the other and they just swing gently back and back. That sometimes just absentmindedly passes the time. Yeah, and just like a magic eight ball, I've got, it seems unlikely, tattooed on my left nut. <laughs> uh, so I started up to mind playing with my balls, and they felt a little bit itchy. Then I find a lump, and not a small one, squarely in the middle of my sack and slightly underneath. Painful and itchy. I immediately assume testicular cancer or similar and start panicking. I ask my partner for a torch, and while she holds the light steady, I lift the sack to see the red angry welt on my balls with a tiny black center. It's a tick. Fuck. How do I get it off in the middle of the night in a tent? It's on my balls. Imagine my horror. Do you want to take a moment to imagine the horror? I was already imagining his horror. He he didn't even need to say that. His word picture had also uh, gone into my imagination, and it was filled with horror. Luckily, tweezers are found. But with the noise I'm making, the kids are up and they come into our part of the tent just in time to see my partner holding the torch steady while I hold my scrotum taut with one hand and then removing both the tick and a chunk of my pouch with the tweezers in the other hand. I don't want to drop the parasite in the bed either and have it kill uh, and and have to kill it one-handed. The other hand is nursing the my the is nursing bloody wound and general trauma. It took about four weeks to heal. The story will live in my family history forever. Please don't use my full name if you ever read this out. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Well, what I love about that also is, like, terrifying for the kids because maybe that's what they think sex is. 
you know, they've heard all about it. They're at that sort of age. They're under 10. They've heard rumors of how babies are made and then they go into a tent and they find that. Or either that or, you know, they just are traumatized by the fact that mum is destroying their old house. <laughs> Martin writes in, subject, uh, state of the planet speech. Aloha. In episode 145, when you discussed... Now, Charlie, tra- can I just mm-hmm. ask, sorry. Yeah. We've had, we've had a Kiora... And we've yeah. also had an aloha. Does that indicate that our, our correspondent is from Hawaii? Uh, no. Uh, strangely, this correspondent is from Denmark. <laughs> oh, okay. Are they also saying aloha in Denmark? I don't know enough about what the common greeting in Denmark is. It would be amazing to me if we found out at this point that in Denmark they also greet each other by saying aloha. <laughs> Well, as a Clausen, I really, I really should know this, but uh, I think they're just being funny. Aloha. In episode 145, when you discussed the Trump election, you thought people weren't looking for you to looking to you for advice on important things, that you weren't worthy of making a state of the nation speech. Allow me to disagree, please. We need your relaxing voices now more than ever. And since you are an international podcast, I believe you should speak for no single nation, but for the entire planet. Would you mind making a State of the Planet speech? And to make it official, I hereby, by the powers vested in me, being a teacher and proud teabagger, declare you presidents and emperors of the world for the duration of your speech. Help us, Tofop. You're our only hope, except for the nurses, doctors and scientists. Wishing you all the best and your loved ones from Denmark. All right. Uh, you know, ordinarily I'd say this is great. We, we should do this speech. But considering this connection is so bad... Um, well, you know what? I will hand the microphone over to you, Will. Can you please do a state of the of the nation speech for the entire planet? A, a call to a call for unity. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to start by saying aloha, <laughs> the international greeting for hello <laughs> that everybody understands. Before I get to my speech, and I'm happy to make one, but before I get to my speech, what I would not do. If I was in charge of the world right now, I would be... Did you see that concert for everybody that they had yesterday in my time? But the concert that... Oh, man, the tone of that thing was so weird, don't you think? Mm. Yeah, I, I I didn't quite... I Look, I only watched like five minutes or so, but I was reading people online talking about, is this as a landmark an event as Live Aid? And I'm like... No, absolutely not. Part of the problem was they were treating it like it was a landmark event like Live Aid. I think that Live Aid didn't quite know that it was going to be Live Aid. You know, they had these hopes and ambitions, but because nobody had done it before, you know, there's that scene, however true it is or not true it is, in the Bohemian Rhapsody film where, you know, the phones weren't really ringing until Queen go on stage. And I think there's an element of truth to that, even though if it isn't entirely... Yeah, no one knew what that Live Aid was going to be, what Live Aid has become historically. Whereas I think with this, it went into it thinking, this is our Live Aid. And then the tone of it, there was all these funny people doing very serious things in between. And it was just, it felt so condescending and so patronizing. And then you would go to these musical artists, these amazing musical, and some of the acts were fantastic. Like, like some of them had done it. I thought the Rolling Stones were 
really fantastic. Like they had the four of them on like a Zoom screen or something like that. Um, you know, Charlie's playing like air drums. It was a really great performance, but they clearly thought about that, what they were going to do. Keith Urban, who is just not my cup of tea in any single way, but he did this like thing to higher love where he's in the middle by himself and then like another Keith Urban comes in and starts playing guitar and another Keith Urban comes in and starts singing and whatever. And it was clever. You know, he thought about it. But then there were other ones, like people like John Legend, who I like John Legend. I'm not anti-John Legend. But, like, they pan to this big piano he has in front of all these fucking Grammys and shit. And you're just like, is this the right tone? Is this what we're meant to be doing now? Yeah, we know you've won a yeah. lot of Grammys, John Legend, but put him in a fucking... Like, I like some of the celebrities because some of the celebrities clearly were like, I don't want to be broadcasting this from my very rich celebrity paradise that everybody would love to be living in. So they'd had to find the crummiest part of their mansion to make it look like they didn't live in a castle in the clouds. And they were the ones I admired. I, I, I got you. You dropped out at um, panning to uh, John Legend's Grammys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Did you finish your rant? Aloha, people of Earth. <laughs> um. We're in a wonderful period in the um, uh, story of human evolution. Right now, we are going through something that right across the world is testing us and it is showing where the weaknesses in the systems are and where the strengths in the systems are. And we are seeing so many strengths. The workers on the front line, the doctors, the nurses, all TOEFOP listeners, um, number one uh, medical podcast on the internet. Anyway, check it out. T-O-F-O-P, all lowercase if you want to donate to the Patreon. Uh, we are seeing the best of us, the kids working coals on the front lines, the putting up with abuse and people's fears. We are seeing the best of us. But we are also seeing the worst of us at the moment. And I think this is an amazing opportunity because there are going to be greater challenges than what we are going through right now that are coming. This is our practice run. This is our simulation. This is level one of the game that we're about to play. And we have an amazing opportunity to come together as a globe, as a world, to forget about boundaries and borders and state versus state. We are a world. We are the human race. And if we are going to survive as a human race, then we need to start acting together like we're all on the same team. And this is our practice run. We get a chance right now to see how well we work together and where the faults in the system are and where we can fix those faults. Why aren't people so isolating? Do they not hear the information? Do they not trust the media? Well, if they don't trust the media, we have to do something about that as a planet, as a humanity. We need reliable media. We need politicians who come to the fore in times of great crisis because there are times of great crisis coming. And when I say coming, they're already here. We're going through them right now and this is our practice run. So everything we do today, everything you give up for the sake of human beings today, I want to shake your hand when we can shake each other's hands. I want to pat you on the back when we can pat each other on the back. I want to give you a high five when we can give each other a high five. And most importantly, I want to give you a hug when we can give each other a hug because this right now, this reminds us what it means to be a human being. And we have an incredible opportunity as human beings to come together right now and be better than we are and fix the problems that we have and remember what's important in life, what people deserve, what that safety net should be, what every single human being on this planet should have opportunity to do. And the life we were living were, was wrong. We were living life wrong. And now 
Now we get a warning sign. Now we get an opportunity to fix this. And this should be one of the most exciting opportunities, a turning point for humans. In a thousand years, when they tell the story of humanity, they will tell the story of what we learned from now and how we put it into place to make humans better from now on. So that's why I, Will Anderson, and Charlie Clawson, and Podcast Mike, and everyone here at TOEFOP, are officially endorsing Dwayne The Rock Johnson for President of the United States. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want.